and welcome to the Mission Recovery Podcast. My name is Maruf Ahmed, and I'm the co-founder of Quit Genius, the world's leading digital clinic for substance addictions. I'm going to be speaking to inspiring individuals about their journey to addiction recovery. Recovery should be celebrated, and the goal of Mission Recovery is to break down the stigma surrounding addictions and to empower others to live addiction-free lives. This is Mission Recovery. Welcome to the latest episode of the Mission Recovery Podcast. In today's episode, I'm looking forward to speaking with Nate Lackman and Sunny Levine from the law firm Folian Lartner. Nate and Sunny are one of the best in the business when it comes to telehealth regulations, and I'm sure they'll have a ton of insights to share with you all. Nate, Sunny, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you on. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Sunny. Thanks both for joining me. For the listeners, it'd be great if you could kick us off by telling us a little bit more about yourselves. Sure, I'll go first. I'm the chair of our firm's telemedicine and digital health industry team and have been practicing law since 2004. We represent a variety of healthcare uh, entities, whether it's hospitals and academic medical centers or tech-enabled service providers and a slew of venture-backed and emerging digital health and telemedicine companies, whether B2B, DTC, or all of the between. The common thread among our clients are people who want to do something new and different in healthcare and believe that the current status quo can be improved significantly and really are using technology as the primary tool today to make that change, whether it's leveraging to have more access to uh, mental health care practitioners on a per capita basis, or whether it's using AI and diagnostic tools and clinical decision support to buff up the potential of clinicians to quickly and accurately diagnose with more precision, or whether to look for new ways to have staffing models distributed or otherwise to maximize the scope of practice for non-physician professionals, all with the goal of making healthcare better, more accessible, and less expensive, primarily for folks in the United States. So I'm really proud of the companies that we work with and what their mission and goal is. And uh, that's what we do every day. Amazing. A very impressive resume. And we're lucky to be one of those companies. So thank you, Nate. Sunny. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sunny Levine. I am an attorney at Foley & Lardner. I work closely with Nate and I'm part of the telehealth team. Um, unique about Foley is that we have a set of attorneys started with just a few and now it's really exploded. Uh, we might have, I think, around 15 or so that are devoted primarily to telehealth compliance issues. Um, telehealth is the practice of profession and it takes various forms. So there's lots of you know, specialty areas that you can start focusing on within the spectrum of healthcare and of telehealth. So my focus is primarily on behavioral health, uh, behavioral health, including substance use disorder treatment. Since the start of the pandemic, really, we've seen an explosion in the need for these services and the traditional delivery model with the in-person requirements just was not conducive for a highly contagious disease like COVID. So we've seen and try to help and uh, client scale models that will utilize telehealth for the delivery of behavioral health services, including substance use disorder treatment. So very happy to be here today and speaking with you all. Absolutely. No, thank you, Sunny. And you touched on actually the, the first topic I wanted to dive into and really well just there. So this is a very much needed service because like you said, Sunny, there's been the pandemic, the emergence of telehealth. So as a result of this, there's been some really big changes in the regulations. So tell us a little bit more about the impact that this has had, especially with the rapid growth of digital health companies. 
With the pandemic, there's been a loosening of regulations on both the state and federal level. Um, federal decision holders, stakeholders, they've noticed that the traditional delivery of care in person, that was just not an option. Uh, we wanna prevent the spread of COVID and one thing to enable the continuation of care, but preventing that in-person contact, which could potentially lead to an increased number of COVID outbreaks um, was through digital health technology. Telehealth is not new. It didn't start with COVID-19. It's been around for years, but the ability to utilize digital health technology in certain areas of treatment, such as substance use disorder treatment, that really was something that came about with the COVID-19 pandemic. One main area that you may be familiar with is it's called the Ryan Hyde Act. This is the lead piece of federal legislation that previously required an in-person interaction between a provider and a patient prior to the uh, prescription of a controlled substance. With COVID-19, DEA actually waived that requirement, allowing for a fully digital interaction between a provider and patient without having that in-person requirement. And so that enabled lots of providers and patients to utilize telehealth where previously there would be a block on the federal level. Thanks for diving in there in a bit of detail, especially with regards to SUD care. And this is me taking it from a quick genius perspective, where we've been allowed to grow rapidly over the last few years because of these, you know, change in regulations. And they've really allowed us to help support members at scale. It's also allowed us to, you know, increase the access to SUD care and make treatment just far more affordable by delivering it virtually. Um, so I guess like with all these regulations in mind, particularly with the regulation changes in SUD, SUD care. How important do you think that these regulations will be in solving, you know, the opioid epidemic and helping increase the access to substance use disorder care overall? That's a great question. And I don't think there's one you know, cure-all, there's no panacea to solving the opioid epidemic. I think it's a multifaceted issue that's, you know, it was created by lots of factors. And so I think solving it or at least making a dent in it will also take you know, a holistic solution. But I do think one excellent way that we've seen progress for evidence-based progress is with the use of increased access using telehealth. Um, there's a lot of issues that prevent patients from receiving care, the lack of providers um, with an X waiver, which will enable them to prescribe you know, for MAT, buprenorphine is the, the leading treatment um, mechanism that's used um, so we've seen that this is one way that we can at least increase the amount of available providers there are for patients in a way that's not as, uh, I guess, invasive, allows for more privacy. Um, a lot of the social stigmas associated with addiction, we think that telehealth helps to at least provide one solution, one way, you know, an access mechanism that will at least get through some of those you know, existing barriers. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree. There's no real magic bullet to solving the opioid epidemic. There's a, a ton of things that need to sort of happen in tandem to really help improve the care. But I think a number of the points that you mentioned really hit the nail on the head there, right, Sonny, right? Being able to increase the convenience of, of care, uh, reducing the barriers to care, um, you know, breaking down that stigma associating with it because people can actually access it from the from the privacy of their own home. But also, um, if we're looking at people within the rural community, communities, right? It's often super hard and difficult for them to access a, a provider in person. So being able to do that virtually has, I think, a, a really great option for, for folks like that. So um, appreciate the, the context there. 
Nate, I wanted to get your thoughts on the pitfalls with the loosening of the regulations, because as Sunny alluded to, there are a number of different benefits that with regards to increased access of care, uh, breaking down the stigma associated uh, with addiction as well. But there are some challenges that this poses. So what have you really seen happen as a result of this? I think that entrepreneurs moving into this space should recognize that multi-state telemedicine services, particularly involving SUD, are one of the most highly regulated areas within healthcare, and healthcare is already among the most highly regulated industries in our country. So uh, companies like yours, right, uh, from an outsider's perspective, it may say, wow, this is a really convenient and easy user experience. It's borderline delightful, right? But a lot of work, an extreme amount of work goes on behind the scenes legal regulatory to build a a homogenous operating structure that works across multiple states, but also clinical compliance oversight. And it's not something that I would think just two dozen inexperienced entrepreneurs could just launch properly and safely. So that would be one cautionary note is that uh, some of these companies were doing it so well. When the copycats or the emulators emerge, you make a copy of a copy of a copy, it just starts getting blurrier and blurrier. And at at what point is it uh, become unsafe? I do think that we should recognize the nature of the particular medication being prescribed here with Suboxone. It is not the same as methadone, right? I don't think that it would be appropriate or have it necessary for patients who would need Suboxone to require them to cut cattle calls in person, uh, like you have at methadone clinics and all of that. I think it's difficult enough to uh, maintain your you know, life and operations uh, dealing with addiction and adding these barriers, I don't see a corresponding benefit. Law really is a bridge from where our society is to where we want to bring it. And that bridge can change. And there are some good policy reasons to say, hey, if you're a methadone clinic and people need that, we want some extra levels of oversight, uh, drug tox screenings, all, all of that kind of stuff. But for Suboxone, as I understand it, it uh, again, I'm, I'm not a, a patient who's used Suboxone, but it has no euphoric effect. Right. So the black market, so to speak, is only for people so desperate to find a a doctor to help them stay sober that they're willing to buy it from someone else, which is a sad state of affairs. So double clicking a little bit on what you mentioned there around almost mistakes being made within the digital health space at large by certain companies who aren't necessarily giving the right, the appropriate attention to care. What what mistakes have you um, seen digital health companies make within this environment? I think one of the most, the easiest mistakes to make, and the one that I've seen the most is the telemedicine companies that hire e-commerce and product developers and designers for the user experience who don't have healthcare backgrounds or come from medicine. And they want to make things quick, uh, cart to checkout ratio. They're very familiar with e-commerce, but what they fail to do is in the virtual user experience, those stages, they fail to really digitize the essential elements of the doctor-patient interaction, right? Instead, they just want to go as quickly as possible to a checkout, which really isn't how it is in normal medicine. There is a steps along the way. Hey, consents. Are you informed about this risk? Are you agreeing to our privacy policies? Do you know how much these things will cost? Is it okay for you to pay for them? More than just the actual clinical questions. And there are answers and solutions to that. So I think what happens is a new co will say they'll do some market research on maybe six or seven companies that they would think would be competitors or similar and just copy their UX without actually thinking why or how or talking to clinicians and lawyers to put it together in the right way. Because there are solutions. I know I say we've developed them, right? There are solutions that work 
across 50 states. And uh, I'm surprised how many companies don't fully follow those elements in the UX. And the explanation they always give is they'll say, this will take too long for the user, or we don't want our customers to have to go through all of these screens, to which I would say, they are patients, these are human beings, and you're not just selling bottles of water or in-app purchases on a, a video game. And it's incumbent on you, you have a moral and ethical and legal responsibility to make sure that these services, albeit digital and e-commerce, are more than just checking out an online purchase. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more on my end. And I think it's interesting that point that you've mentioned in this is a marrying of technology and healthcare, right? And having one but not the other is deemed deemed failure. So I think that's a super important point. And actually, you know, I can speak for ourselves here at Quit Genius, being a physician by background, the reason why I do what I do every day is to, for our mission to help 100 million people overcome all forms of substance addiction. So this is why, you know, like you said, putting the members first, uh, taking that human-centered approach is at the core of everything we do. So thank you so much for that important reminder, Nate. Changing tack just a little, um, Sunny, I wanted to get your thoughts here because the telehealth space is evolving rapidly. Like Nate said, there's continuously new companies entering the space, continuously new entrepreneurs entering the space. As a result of this, there's continuously new solutions entering the space. But sometimes the laws and the regulations aren't always keeping up to pace with the advancements in technology, especially within the healthcare space. So tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that you see this posing over the coming years. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot of thought there. <laughs> it really does seem that the law is creeping behind the pace of technology. A lot of the laws, including, you know, I mentioned earlier, the Ryan Hyde Act, these were drafted 20 years ago and for entirely different purposes than for what you know, the actual issues that we are seeking to combat now, we can see technology has just changed in every way. Um, technology we're using more and more, it's evolving extremely fast, but again, the laws and the regulations seem to have been stuck in the days when they were originally drafted, which you know, the internet was a very different thing. So we've seen that you know, state regulators the laws on the books currently, again, they're drafted for this you know, pre kind of internet days when they didn't understand how technology could be utilized in a safe and efficient way and not trying to cut quarters on a lot of the clinical requirements that you know, to meet the standard of care. So we've seen that you know, we need a push to ensure that these regulations keep a pace with the scope and clip of the technology evolving without losing a lot of the you know, clinical requirements and ensuring that the standard of care is still met. Um, so, for example, state laws in the U.S., almost every state really, they regulate on their own the substance use disorder treatment system. Most states require a license in order to provide substance use disorder treatment. However, the way that the regulations are currently drafted, they look to see a physical in-person clinic or some sort of facility space, and that's a requirement for licensure. Licensure holds the key to several things. Some states, you can't even provide substance use disorder treatment unless you have that license. You can't enroll in the state Medicaid program. You can't receive other types of state funding unless you obtain this license. But a group that is providing only telehealth treatment, again, it's, it's a real issue is that you cannot obtain that license if you're telehealth only. And the way that the regulations are drafted, there's just no way around it. State regulators have not updated these laws in several states. And so this is just, it presents a practical issue. 
That being said, we are seeing some states make progress and understand these unique challenges and the ways that telehealth can be used effectively. So for instance, New York's agency, OASAS, which previously had some of the most strict requirements as far as operating a substance use disorder treatment group, we're seeing that they're now issuing proposed regulations for telehealth only groups. So they're understanding that you can deliver successful substance use disorder treatment without having the traditional in-person facility or using the same types of treatment modalities that were previously only uh, considered before technology has evolved. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the inconsistency that you sort of mentioned across different states is often quite challenging from from both sides of things, from a member's perspective, but then also from a a telehealth organization perspective like Quit Genius, right? And we'll come on to this in just a moment on the great work that Foley are doing to really drive some consistency and and lobbying across the different state regulators and and on a federal standpoint as well. So appreciate the insight and context there, Sunny. One of the things I wanted to dive into, and this is related to the regulations, but it's also a bit of the talk of the town at this moment in time, um, and that's the telehealth cliff that a number of folks are, are speaking about and the impact that that's going to have on patient care. So Sunny, Nate, do you mind just telling the listeners a little bit more about this telehealth cliff and the impact that this could potentially have on members and patients receiving their care? Sure. Uh, I think Murphy, what you're referring to is that Currently, with the COVID-19 public health emergency, the federal public health emergency, there has been certain waivers that have been in existence since really March 2020. Um, These are waivers that are on the federal level, but many states have also issued their own waivers also, allowing for flexibilities in the deliver of telehealth um, from various aspects, from CMS, more reimbursement for telehealth services, to just general practice, as we mentioned, the Ryan Hyde Act and DEA. However, these waivers are all coterminous with the federal public health emergency. The federal public health emergency is extended and renewed for 90-day increments. And so it seems also that HHS has decided to renew these public health emergency increments the day that they're set to expire. So each time we are waiting on bated breath to see if this waiver period will extend or if it will be cut off and we wait really to the last minute. When the public health emergency does end, that will, again, roll back many of these flexibilities that have been in place since March 2020. This is what is known as the telehealth cliff. So unless permanent regulations and legislation is in play before the end of the public health emergency, there is a potential for a gap that we need to figure out what to do within this gap. Um, will there be you know, enforcement discretion not to start to, to seek compliance for, for clients that have been operating under these waivers? For instance, groups that have prescribed controlled substances without that prior in-person due to the waiver of the Ryan Hyde Act. We're seeing it, what, what exactly will happen in this in-between period. We have counseled our clients you know, to ensure that they have contingency plans in place in the event this telehealth cliff becomes a reality and there is some sort of period of and we're not sure really what the status of the regulations are and if they are back in place, will they be enforced? Will they be enforced with certain grace period or grandfathering? And so this is it's a state of uncertainty that we're hoping to you know, receive more clarity from the federal level and also from states as to what their positions will be post waiver and what exactly we need to do as a telehealth lawyer and also our, how do we advise our clients on the best way to counsel them in the event of some sort of telehealth cliff. Yeah. 
And this isn't just an academic discussion among lawyers, because there are real people involved using these medications. If you look at, I'm sure it's probably not a doctor, so it's probably not appropriate to just characterize addiction as like chronic disease management, right? But this isn't like you just take the medicine one time and everything's fine. So these patients are relying on continued uh, access for medication-assisted therapy. And if there's a gap, right? We've received, the confusion has received a lot of promises from regulatory agencies, particularly on SUD, that they say, we want to do nothing to inhibit the ability for patients to stay sober and, you know, live and, and work with these SUD services for virtual suboxone. However, we haven't seen actually anything published by DEA or the AG or signed into law by the White House that would make it permanent, right? It's all just sort of cold comfort letters, if you will. And I certainly do believe in them, but there could be a situation where you have doctors who also care about their own professional livelihood and career and obligations uh, saying, well, the federal laws say I no longer can issue these prescriptions, but I have an ongoing responsibility for patient continuity of care to the people that I've been treating. What am I supposed to do? Should I just simply say, I'm sorry, the law has changed. I can't prescribe for you anymore. Figure it out yourself. Or should I say, well, the law should be changed. The agencies are telling me they are going to change it, but they haven't yet. Should I just not follow the law and break it? What what does that mean for my professional obligations? And then one layer removed, what about the medical groups and the telemedicine companies and hospitals that employ these doctors? To what extent is it appropriate for them to say, we really want you and expect you to be comfortable without infringing on their independent medical decision-making? So it's nice to see these letters from the DEA and HHS saying we support SUD, but what would be even nicer is just to actually get meaningful change, have Congress vote the Treats Act and the president sign it into law, or have the DEA say, you know what, we believe the opioid crisis is its own PHE to uh, trigger Ryan Hyde Act exemption. Certainly had no problem uh, announcing a PHE for monkeypox. And I would posit to say that the number of people uh, with uh, opioid-related SUD addiction significantly outstrips the number of people who have been exposed to monkeypox thus far. So obviously there's politics involved, but I, I think at the end of the day, if they're, the problem with the telehealth cliff is that the people who are going to suffer the punishment are the patients themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't have said that better myself, Nate. This is a very challenging situation for, for patients, for providers, for telehealth organizations as well, because ultimately the current solutions in place are not sustainable. Renewing every 90 days at the last minute where there's uncertainty of treatment. And like you said, this is a chronic disease that needs to be treated like a chronic disease, right? This isn't a choice. This is something that needs long-term management. And unfortunately, when that management isn't there, that's when patients relapse and struggle even further with substance addiction. So some really great insights there, Nate and Sunny. Yourselves at Foley have been doing some great work to get some of this changed. At least seven or eight years ago, my volunteer work with the American Telemedicine Association. We had a half-day meeting at the DEA's headquarters about the Ryan Hyde Act special uh, registration for telemedicine rule and they listened to us and said, great, we're going to publish that rule shortly. You know, eight years later, it still hasn't come out for when that proposed rule should come out. Ultimately, really, I don't point the finger at the DEA. They are under the jurisdiction of the attorney general's office and the attorney general. The DEA could have written the rule years ago. 
And uh, unless and until the attorney general releases it, it won't go to uh, public notice for comment. And as we know, in the prior administration, there was a change in the attorney general's position several times. So some of that could have attributed to this delay. In any event, we've put out model language through our blogs and our thought leadership and reports just you know, for free because we think it's a good thing to do. We've worked with the, I'm, I serve on the American Telemedicine Association's Board of Directors. Prior to that, I was in their policy council. And so we've also drafted model language for states to look to if they need uh, consistency and homogeneity across states in order you know, to have these services delivered in a By the end of the day, companies should not have to pay a ton of money for lawyers to understand these nuances and complexities when the human body in addiction medicine, I don't see any reason why it would be treated differently in Massachusetts than it would be in Florida than it would be in California. Obviously, there's social and cultural differences regionally, but I think that would pale in the need for homogenous regulation to allow more companies to proliferate and offer these services at scale. So I do think that these concerted efforts are yielding results and benefits notwithstanding some of the political interaction that we're seeing uh, just within Congress itself. As you said, Nate, the progress has taken slightly longer than we anticipated, but ultimately the progress is great, right? The new announcement in August of 2022 is huge and there is progress being made. And and that's uh, thanks to a lot of the great work you guys are doing, but then also uh, everyone, I guess, collaborating to do what's right for the members and the patients. And and Sunny, I know you're involved in like advocating on a state level. So tell me a little bit more about some of the reception that you've been seeing. Sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a patchwork of states. Um, some states are more receptive than others, but there has been some successes um, that I'm extremely happy and proud of. So the state laws, you know, some states are more conservatively drafted and they have a very outdated kind of view of substance use disorder. And so in some state statutes and regulations, you still see terms such as an addicted person is a failure to control impulses. And you'll see these very outdated definitions that are in no way clinical. And you could tell, go back to talk about the stigma, you see that stigma 100% and how the state was at least previously looking at people that suffer from addiction. We've been able to successfully work with regulators who seem to be more open-minded and understand exactly you know, what substance use disorder is, what MAT is, which is you know, the leading treatment mechanism, medication-assisted treatment, and what buprenorphine is and how this all works together in a way that is a very successful evidence-based solution to this overwhelming epidemic that continues to become worse year after year. So when we start speaking with the regulators, helping them to understand, you know, it's mainly an education process, you know, what exactly our client is trying to do, what this model presents that's different from the traditional model, how it's already subject to certain regulations. For instance, you know, all prescribers are already under the jurisdiction of their licensing boards in this state and exactly how this diverts and but how it is similar from a traditional traditional model. And oftentimes we've seen regulators are very, you know, they are interested in learning and they want to obviously help and be on the part of progress, not you know, serve as another barrier to treatment and care. So on a state-by-state you know, basis, slow going, but we have seen progress. And then we've also seen a lot of states on their own. The legislator has passed laws that um, allow for virtual MAT treatment. Um, So for instance, Ohio previously had a very restrictive law on controlled substance prescribing. 
Recently, they enacted a new telehealth law, and then the medical board released and promulgated their regulations that carve out an express exception for the use of telehealth to prescribe controlled substances that are used in medication-assisted treatment. So we're seeing more states like this. It seems to be trending that way, and that's you know obviously a very important thing. Patients need this access, and you know as more and more people are educated about this, the better it will become, and the more victors we'll see as far as treatment. You hit the nail on the head there, Sunny. Education is key to solving this, to helping breaking down the stigma and really moving some of these efforts forward. Finally, I know a lot of listeners are very passionate about this topic. What can we all do to help support the efforts you and your team are doing and and help make a difference? One obvious one is, uh, I mean, uh, a plug for the American Telemedicine Association. They've created what's known as ATA Action, which is a lobbying entity that is able to directly engage with lawmakers on federal level, as well as uh, state by state, to explain to them the benefits of these rule changes and how they are safe and don't represent patient harm. There's actually a, an emerging body. It's still kind of early because the uh, you know, what COVID waiver period has only been about two and a half years, but merging a body of clinical studies showing that virtual SUD with Suboxone has much higher adherence rates uh, than equivalent in person. So this lack of evidence of uh, patient harm manifested. So I'm proud of the companies that are not just trying to build their own service footprints, but also add to peer-reviewed clinical literature out there so that everybody can benefit, not just their own company. The ATA holds a public policy and law forum every winter called EDGE. It's in uh, Washington, D.C. Last year, they had a whole program just on this clinical studies of virtual SUD and what some of the early results are. So I would encourage uh, listeners to check that that out as one venue. I think NatCon is also a really another excellent resource for um, behavioral health and SUD in particular. Finally, you don't need to have a lawyer or a lobbyist or anything to make your voice heard. When the uh, DEA's Ryan Heideck proposed rule comes out, there should be 60 days for the public to submit comments. Anybody can submit comments. They can do so directly, either in mail or just via email electronic submission. So if the DEA does not hear from you, you, you don't exist, right? So it's incumbent. if you actually care, it's incumbent on you put in the letter, put in the comment, let them know uh, what you like about the rule or what you don't like about the rule and do it swiftly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a keynote at the end there. Like everyone, every voice is heard and every voice makes a difference. So um, I echo Nate's sentiment of please reaching out and really helping make a difference by driving some change in policies here. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be helping support your efforts, uh, Nate and Sunny. But that's a wrap for today. Thank you so much for joining me, Nate and Sunny. I've really enjoyed this and you both shared some great insights and some great learning. So thank you once again for your time. Thanks for speaking with you. Thank you. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you for tuning in. You can find out more about Quick Genius on quickgenius.com and the podcast on missionrecoverypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed our content, I'd really appreciate if you could subscribe and consider leaving us a review. Thank you. Thank you.